0: Hey everybody, if you take out your study notes now, and uh, I just actually have scripture for you today. And I'm going to share a story with you from the Old Testament. It's one of my old time favorite Old Testament stories, and you're going to wonder why after I read it to you. But uh, it starts in Act, or 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24. Verse 24 starts, sometime later, then Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army, and he marched up, and he laid siege to Samaria. Now, what they did is they surrounded and they cut off all the source of supply. And in the old days, when you had a walled city, there was two ways you could do it. You could try to climb over the wall or you could just embank your armies right around it and just wait. Because they couldn't get food, they couldn't get out and stuff like that. You just finally kind of win that way. Verse 25, there was a great famine in the city. And now it gets a little gross. If there are any little children, please plug their ears. Back to verse 25, the seeds lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. Now, 80 shekels is about two pounds of silver. I looked up how much silver is today. It's about just shy of $21 an ounce, so that would be $672 for a donkey's head. And then it says a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. Now, a quarter of a cab is about a half a pint, and five shekels is about two ounces of silver. Now, if you have your own Bible, and you were reading along with me, you would see that when it says uh, uh, a cab of seed pods, there would be a C there because there would be a footnote. There would be a footnote under what a shekel is. There would be a footnote under what a cab is. And then it says under the seed pods, it, it has a footnote. You go down and it says, the literal translation would be this. There was a quarter of a cab of dove's dung. Uh, that sold for 5 shekels. So now if you uh, think about that you order drive up window and you say I'd like to have a, high, a half pint of dog or a bird poop please and they said that will be $42. Okay. I'll tell you what they're saying they're saying food was scarce and it was really really scarce and so verse 26 it says as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall a woman cried out to him help me my lord the king and the king replied If the Lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? You've got to understand the sarcasm that's coming out here. And then verse 28, he asked her, what's the matter? And she answered, this woman said to me, give me your son so we may eat him today and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. And the next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him. But she had hidden him. Now let me ask you a question, does it get any worse than this? I mean, this is a level of peril and darkness and franticness, and it's virtually an undescribable situation. Now right in the middle of all this mess at the city of gate, there's four characters who come into the story. So jump down to chapter 7, verse 3. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. Now, by the way, the reason they'd be at the city gate is that lepers had to kind of live outside the city. They thought leprosy was highly contagious. In fact, if you had leprosy and somebody started walking to you, you're supposed to raise your hand and go, unclean, unclean, because you you didn't want them to get, get close to you. So people would throw scraps of food over the walls of the city, down to the lepers on the outside of the city walls. Okay, so they're at the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? They're starving to death. So verse 4, it says, If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we die. And if we say stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. By the way, the Arameans, that's that's the enemy that was besieging the city. If they spare us, we live. And I love this next line. If they kill us... Then we die. I, mean, <laughs> I think the King James says it best we shall but die, you know. Verse five At dusk, they got up and they went to the camp of the Arameans. And when they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another Look, the King of Israel has hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. Uh, I was reading one. Uh, this is way back years ago, so I hope I have all my facts straight. Uh, but uh, they were saying within that area there was large pine trees. And the, that when the wind rushes through, it gives the appearance of, a, you know, could, could be like a troops or something just moving through. And so they thought, oh, no, they've hired some people to come and, and wipe us out. So now let's see where we are. Verse 7. So they got up and they fled in the dusk and they abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys and they left the camp as it was and they ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp. They entered one of the tents and they ate and drank. And then they took silver, gold and clothes and they went off and they hid them. And they returned and, yet, and entered another tent and they took some things from it and they hid them also. So you see what's going on here. They're stockpiling all this stuff. There's four of them. This whole enemy camp has been abandoned. They're having a ball with all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, drop down to verse 9. Then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. Now, There's more in the story, but jump down to verse 16 and we'll just end the story here. So they go back to the city, they tell the king what's happened. In verse 16, it says, Then the people went out and they plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a seah, by the way, a seah would be not quite seven quarts of the finest flour sold for a shekel, and two seahs, so that's about 13 quarts of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. Now the reason it said that is back at chapter 7, verse 1. The prophet Elijah had made a prophecy that this famine was going to end and this would be the price of what things would be someday. And some people didn't believe him. In fact, one guy specifically didn't believe him. And Elijah said to him, you're going to get killed for not believing this word from the Lord. And sure enough... When the people heard about it, they started rushing out of the city, and wouldn't you know, they trampled over that guy, and he was killed as they were running out to get all this stuff. But anyway, that's, that's not the main point of the story that I want to bring out. There. But I, just, I love the language uh, that's used and how descriptive these phrases are here. You know, these leopards say, if we stay here, we die. If we go in the city, we die. If they kill us, we shall but die. I get a kick out of that. I might be the only one. Apparently I am. But uh, I also like it that they went for broke. They say, why sit here and die? Why don't we roll the dice? You know? So they go out, and, and, and I like how it says in verse 8 in the New Living Translation, that they go into one of the tents at first, and they sit. it says, we can't believe our good fortune." Well, then they have enough to go to the next ten, the next ten, and they're just having a ball, and they lean into this discovery and It's like they say, "Hey, wait a minute, I love the way it's written in verse nine. We're not doing right." And so then they decide that they've got to go and they've got to tell other folks about it anyway, I've always liked this story, and, and over the years, I thought about the implications of this story uh, and, and and how it affects me in a certain way, and I think how it can affect us. And so, what I want to do is just kind of walk through it and make some observations about how this might make us a little more intentional about how we reach out to others as well. The first observation is this go for broke ass spirit that these four lepers have. If we die here, we die here, but let's take a shot. And so, they roll the dice, they go for broke, at least they tried something. That's what I'd love to have on my tombstone someday, by the way. At least he tried. <laughs> you know. So, so I don't know if you realize this, but when an individual Christian begins to really catch on to the adventure of personal outreach, it's usually when they spend some quality time reflecting about God and the meaning of life, the centrality of the gospel message, the reality of eternity, the fact that you're only here for a little while, and it's when you look in the mirror and you realize, you know, I'm not going to be around here forever. And the $64,000 question becomes, what am I going to have to show for my life? Is it just going to be the typical stuff that, you know, everybody has to show for their life? A house and two cars and outdated clothes in my closet and a, and a small portfolio to pass on to my kids? Is that what life in the final analysis is all about? Or sometimes it's when a church takes a collective look at itself in the mirror and the church says, okay, we're probably going to be around here for a few years if the Lord tarries. And so we'll be holding services and we'll be motivating people to pray and to serve and to give. But what will we have to show for our collective efforts over the next 5 or 10 or 15 years? A little brick and mortar? Some updated computers? Maybe a larger budget? Is that enough? Do you feel good about that? I don't. Well, the answer to both of those existential questions is people. In the final analysis, what is life supposed to be about? In the final analysis, what is the church really about? It's about people. And from cover to cover, what the Bible teaches is that the ultimate treasure in all the universe, God's ultimate priority in the world, is to invite as many people as possible to come into God's family through Jesus Christ. And whenever Jesus was asked, hey, why did you come? He always boiled it down. And there's many different places he said this, but but I'll give you one of the most famous ones. He said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. Remember in his final commission, it's called the Great Commission. Just before he ascended to the Father, he says, now you guys go for broke. Get out of your holy huddles and take the message of the cross and get out there. He said, go where? Go into all the world. Go for broke into the world. Try to lead people to faith. And when you do, teach them to observe observe everything I've commanded you. Well, when that redemptive light bulb goes off in the mind of an individual or in the mind of a whole church, things really begin to change. An individual or church begins to ponder the challenge of comparing the upside potential to the downside potential. Someone says, all right, well, I'll give myself fully to leading a contagious Christian lifestyle I'll take some risk in in, in presenting the gospel. I'll go for broke. What might the upside potential be? Because remember, these lepers, they're sitting at the gate, and they're thinking, we've got a decision to make. We can go for broke. What's the upside? We could live. We could be fed. Pretty good upside. What if I go for broke with sharing my faith, And, and what if we did as a church? Well, the Bible says if you go for broke in the power of the Holy Spirit, there's this high likelihood that some of your friends and family members, some of your neighbors and colleagues are going to be redeemed, and they're going to have a regenerated heart, and they're going to have a redirected life, and they're going to have a redirected eternity. Or if a church collectively commits itself to raising the evangelistic temperature, what's the upside potential for a church like Water's Edge? I was thinking about it this week. It could be breathtaking. Could you imagine that if each one of us reached one this year, we could stream a hundred freshly redeemed people into the family of God here at Waters Edge? Luke 15:10 says, "There is joy in the presence of all the angels of heaven when a single person repents and trusts Christ." We started this morning by singing. Some of you weren't here yet. Go tell it on the mountain. That was pretty intentional. Why would you sing a Christmas song in the middle of the summer? The upside potential is for you as an individual and for us as a church that uh, there could be some amazing things happening. You say, yeah, well, what about the downside risk? You know, the lepers in this story, they considered the the downside risk as well, and they concluded, when they thought through the whole thing, well, we shall but die. (laughs) I love the way it's put. The downside risk isn't that bad for us if we go for broke. You know, friends, I still remember an era in my life when I knew that my heart was not going for broke. I would be real safe about this whole thing. You know, what's the worst possible downside outcome that might come my way if I got intentional about sharing my faith? And I started to think about this. And I concluded that the worst thing that could happen to me is someone could decline my gentle suggestion that they take a deeper look at the spiritual dimension of their life. Somebody might say, excuse me, Bill, very interesting conversation, but I'd rather bring it to a close right here, and maybe we can talk about something else. Maybe they'd give a polite thanks, but no thanks. Now think about that. That's about as bloody as it's going to get for any of us. You know, That's as close to martyrdom as you and I are likely ever going to get. Thanks, but no thanks for now. Now here's my question, is that so God-awful tragic? Is that what has kept many of us shaking in our boots? Is it somebody saying thanks but no thanks? Is that enough to zip up our mouth for the rest of our lives? What's the matter with us? What are we thinking I thought that through and I thought, man, sometimes I'm so paralyzed by the possibility of a little social, a little emotional rejection. And I fall into a pattern of never trying, never risking, certainly never going for broke. I remember thinking a couple of years ago, you chicken. Jesus shed his blood and you're hanging back from being a witness because you're afraid that someone might say, could we talk about this later? That's enough for now. Remember the parable that Jesus told one time about the sower and the seed? I love this parable because it helps me. Jesus said there once was a sower and he had a bag of seed and he knew what his job was. His job was to scatter seed and scatter it and scatter it and scatter it. The Bible says he scattered it and it fell on a hard packed soil. And he'd come back a week or a month later and he'd realize that all that effort, all that walking, all that scattering, it was a bust because the seed had fallen on hard packed soil. But he kept scattering. And he'd come back, and then he would see some fall on rocky soil, and he looked at like the, it looked like the seed was going to come up. But then there wasn't enough soil for the roots to take hold, and the plant would die, and it would be discouraging to the sower. But he would keep sowing. And then the Bible says some fell on thorny soil, and the weeds would grow up and strangle it. Another bust, a bust of hard-packed soil, a bust of rock soil, a bust of thorny soil. But what does Jesus say about the sower? He just kept on sowing. He did what sowers do. He had character, he had perseverance, and so he kept scattering seed. And then Jesus says, guess what? Some fell on fertile soil. And when it fell on fertile soil, it took root. And the roots went down deep and the plant grew and it became a big bush and birds nested in it. You know why Jesus told that story? Because he was saying to Bill Crawford and he was saying to every one of you, you're the only sowers I have. And if you stop sowing, it's lights out. And Jesus was saying, I know you're going to sow seed that's going to fall on hard packed soil, and people aren't going to respond, and it's going to seem like a bust. Don't quit. And He says, I know sometimes your seed is going to fall on rocky soil or on thorny soil, and you're going to get your hopes up, and then your hopes are going to be dashed. But don't quit. Because someday you're going to be sowing that seed out of sheer character and guts and perseverance and endurance. And some of that seed is going to fall on fertile soil. And when it does, someone will put their hope and trust in Christ. And you will see life change and the beauty of the kingdom of God advancing one life at a time. And you had something to do with it. And man, I'll tell you, you're going to be glad you didn't quit. I love the text because, I'll be honest with you, I get very discouraged with my sowing and sometimes you hear stories that I tell you over the last three years about you know all the seed that falls on fertile soil, and I, I just realized that maybe I need to balance that out and be a little more revealing about all the seed that I sowed that just seems to come up as a bust. you know. But over the years, I've had to figure out what to do with my discouragement with sowing seed, because for me, the great temptation is to stop sowing. So here's what I've learned when I... I'm sowing seed and it just seems to be falling to every kind of soil but fertile soil. There's a couple of things to hang on to even when people aren't responding and it's real difficult. First, there ought to be some self-esteem that comes when the Holy, comes the Holy Spirit knowing that at least you are being a faithful sower. At least you're the kind of person who can say along with the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And sometimes when you just keep sowing and it's difficult and no one's coming to faith, at least you can get into bed at night and you can say, but I tried and I didn't shrink back and I didn't bail out. And you feel that whisper of God just saying something like, well done, you're the only sower I have with your name and your place on it, and I need you. Keep sowing. The other thing that I hang on to when I've been sowing is these studies that I've read that estimate that the average unbeliever has to hear the gospel about seven times before they respond to it. So sometimes I'm sowing seed, nothing seems to be happening, and I go to bed at night, and I say, "Well, maybe I was just the first one of seven that happened, and maybe I opened the door just a little crack," or maybe, "Well, maybe I was the number four guy in the chain. You know, I brought him over the halfway point." <laughs> sometimes I'm get a little discouraged. I'm talking to somebody, and it seems like, you know, things aren't going well. Well, maybe I was the number six guy, and the next time they hear the gospel, they're gonna commit, and I'll be like a spiritual RBI, you know. <laughs> I get an assist, you know. Uh, and so I hang on to that. But I'll tell you what, I've got to keep sowing, and you've got to keep sewing. Some years ago, when I was single and living in Adina, Minnesota, I know my wife will smile now, my best friend was Dave Gibson. He was a pastor at Grace Church in Adina, Minnesota. And he went through a spell where he, he was sewing and sewing and nothing was happening. He was like 0 for 50, you know. And he's flying back from the West Coast, and he's on a flight, and he sits down to this businesswoman who had a computer going, and she seemed to be working hard. And he told me he was thinking, that was good because I didn't want to talk because I was in a slump, he said. So he's reading, and then the meal comes. In those days, they used to serve meals on airplanes. And, uh, <laughs> and they started a little chat, uh, Over dinner, And she asked him what he did professionally. And he said, well, I'm a pastor. She said, no. And he said, yeah, I am. (laughs) And he said, why do you sound so shocked? And she said, because a few months ago, my boss, a real hard-driven business type, became one of those born-again types. And it just changed his whole life. He gave me a Bible. And he's telling me you ought to find a church that God is the greatest thing coming down the pike. So she said, I guess I'm so impressed with this changed life that I was thinking about going to church. So Dave said, well, where do you live? And she said, "Adina, Minnesota. (laughs) And he said, I think I can help you. And he did. And they were off to the races, and God worked. Now, since I've been living in L.A., I have had a lot of periods of feeling discouraged about not seeing more people come to know Christ. Some of you know what that's like. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine just a couple weeks ago. I'd meet with a group of pastors. We're called gatekeepers. It's a group of pastors from the South Bay area. And there's one pastor in our group. His congregation is extremely small. Like if they get into double digits, they're happy. And he's been serving for 20 years. And I was was talking to this other pastor. In fact, he's a pastor right down the street here at the Evangelical Free Church. And I said, man, that guy's incredible, isn't he? And Brandon said to me there's, that it occurred to him that uh, probably more than any other time in his life, he realizes that it's, it's your character that makes you a faithful witness. And sometimes it just boils down to doing what God asks you to do even when you're not batting well, even when you're not getting results, even though it's hard. He said, that guy's a man of character because he digs in and he just keeps sowing. Last summer, Kathy and I got a chance to go back to the first church that I ever pastored in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. And as I walked in the door, the usher said, you don't know who I am, do you? You don't remember me, do you? And I've got a line for that. I remember your face, but help me with your name. Uh, I said to one guy, your face is simple, but your name is hard. But uh, <laughs> anyway, he gave me his name. And he described how I had met with him for breakfast back in 1991 and how he started to come and listen to my sermons. And by the way, he was invited to the church by his boss. And he said that I had led him to Christ and now his wife had found a relationship with Christ and now he's the usher at the church and he just I just wanted to say thanks. And I'll tell you, I went back to the hotel with my wife Kathy and I thought to myself, i got to keep sewing. I've got to sew and sew and sew. I've got to go for broke Not to keep count, not even to keep track so much. It's just I got to sow. By the way, we're the only sowers God has. And the seed of the word of God, the the seed of the message of Christ is so powerful. It's got to get out there out of that little bucket and onto the dirt before it can do anything. So, anyway, I just love what the lepers represent in this story because they go for broke. And I'm telling you, I want to go for broke. I mean, wouldn't it be something if our church would go for broke? Another observation story, just real quickly, it catches my attention. It's the extent in which the, these lepers drink in their good fortune. I think it was just a blast in verse 8. They're starving to death. They're lepers. They're outcasts. They go for broke. They stumble into all this bounty. They go from tent to dent, and I picture them sampling different things and drinking stuff and laughing and having a food fight. I don't know. They're just having a ball with all this stuff. And here's what I think about when I picture those leopards who are drinking in their good fortune. I have noticed that the most effective ambassadors for Christ over the long haul are the people who have given themselves permission to drink in the lavishness and the goodness and the grace of God. You show me someone who's availed himself or herself fully of saving grace and what it means to be adopted into the family of God and someone who's embraced the wonder of Christian community, the wonder of vital worship, the power of prayer, the exhilaration of celebration, the fulfillment of serving, the joy of the promise of heaven, and I'll show you someone who has drunk in spiritual blessings fully and regularly and extravagantly, and I'll show you someone who is spilling over naturally with the desire to tell someone else how it came about and how they became free. On the other hand, you show me a Christian who's locked into legalism, burdened by ritualism, Suckered by scorekeeping, performance-oriented Christianity, unduly focused on cross-bearing and self-denial, a Christian who knows little celebration, little worship, no fellowship, for, no forgiveness and grace and how to be a grace giver. And I'll show you someone who isn't very fired up about inviting their friends to this kind of life. Why would you? <laughs> I talked to a woman one time and she got her wires crossed theologically and she had some bad things happen to her church and all that. And she said, you know what the greatest burden in my life is? God. I mean, I just can't please him. She says, I can't do this. I can't do that. He's the biggest burden in my life. And I'm looking at this woman. And I'm saying, I'll bet you she is a real raving evangelist. <laughs> no, she had her wires crossed and we talked about it. and She admitted it, that that was true. But when you talk to someone else who says, you know, God is the greatest burden lifter I have. He lifts me out of sin and shame. He gives me purpose. He lifts me out of boredom. He lifts me out of confusion. He puts wings in my life. God gives me a challenge and an adventure through the power of the Holy Spirit. When someone drinks lavishly from the fountain of the goodness of God, it just spills over to other people. And I look at these lepers, and they're out there, and they're eating, and they're drinking, and they're trying on clothes, and they're realizing that all this is such wonderful stuff. And they say, we're not doing right. This wonderful stuff should be available to everybody. There's one line from a book of Dallas Willard that really zonked me this last week. I shared it with, with Kathy. He writes, it is the responsibility of every Christ follower... To carve out a satisfying life under the loving rule of God so sin won't look so good. It's our responsibility to lean into the grace of God. To lean into the wonder, the lavishness with which God wants to pour his love and his grace into our lives. It's the responsibility of every Christ follower to arrange or to rearrange his or her life until the relationship with Christ is so good, until the joy level is such that you would live naturally with a propensity for it to just overflow. Anyway, one of the reasons why it's so important for us to do, do what the leopards did, to, to lean into this lavishness and graciousness of God, is that it just positions our heart to overflow. And then sharing our faith isn't a drudgery, it's just natural. It's like breathing. Any of you ever eaten at Silvio's? It's one of Kathy and my favorite places down the Hermosa Pier. It would be like eating a meal at Silvio's during a World Cup match that Brazil wins. (laughs) You know, I just wish we could have all been there. I wish you could have been with me and Kathy this week as we sat at a table in South Carolina with Brandon and Liz Shea. Liz was the redhead who used to help lead our worship. We're sharing about our kids and our work and our struggles and our joys and what God is teaching us and we're praying with and for each other and what we experienced together was so good. And when that's the flow of your heart, then you know you're getting it right. And it's our responsibility to carve out that satisfying life so that we are positioned that way. I read a Christmas letter a few years ago in a magazine by a a guy who I don't know But he's been a Christian for over 20 years. And I have to tell you, sometimes Christians, the longer they walk with Christ, the crankier they get. But this guy was a little different. Listen to this. He said, life for me, this is his Christmas letter. Life for me is nothing short of amazing. Wonderful, unexpected blessings, new friends, treasured old friends, rich times of quietness before God and rich times in worship of him. I'm older, but my love for God is fuller. My love for family is richer. My gratitude for each of you who walk this road with us is so much greater. And my conviction that God is real and that God is faithful and that the real truth of Christmas is that God with us moment by moment, day by day, in rich times and in sorrow, has never been so deep. So I'm doing my best to drink in every moment of this Christmas season. And I'm praying that you would seize this day too. That you would seize it and that you would find in each moment the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Man, can you imagine someone far from God getting a letter like that? You see, he's making life with God sound really good. I read a survey about Christians, and one of the most troubling statistics was the indication that the longer that people walk with God, now think about this, this is how the chart goes, 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years being a Christian. And the indication of the survey was that the longer people walk with God, the more isolated they become from people outside the faith, and apparently the less concerned they become about those people. And the fewer invites they make to people to join them in any activities that would involve their faith in Christ. Now, when I read that data and I saw that graph going down, sensitivity to the plight of the lost, down. Willingness to engage the lost, down. Willingness to share their faith, down. Willingness to invite people to services, all going down the more they walk with Christ. No kidding, friends. I looked at that chart and I thought, this, like the lepers, this is wrong. I can't think of anything to get more upset about as a private Christian than if that line were true in my life or in your life. Because what is to be expected as we walk with God who is the lover of our souls? What would be expected of a life that spends another year and another year and another year just drinking in the goodness of God? Standing on the promises of God a year closer to heaven, a year of greater worship, greater fellowship. What ought to happen? I think each successive year as we walk with God, our heart ought to break just a little bit more every year for anyone who's outside the family. Our courage and our boldness ought to go up bit by bit every year that we walk with Christ. Our sense of urgency about the plight of lost people ought to go up a little bit, a little bit every single year until the day we die when we hit the crescendo of passion for people who are outside the faith. You know, we sang a song just a couple minutes ago And here were the words. I don't know if you remember them. There's nothing worth more that will ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're our living hope, your presence, Lord. I've tasted and seen of the sweetness of love where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone in your presence, Lord. You know, I've been praying that God's power would be shown so that every single person in this church would walk each year with a greater sense of concern for and engagement with and bolder invites to people outside the family of God so that more people would meet Christ. And I'm praying that we're going to turn that chart from going south to going north. But I can't do the work inside of your life that needs to be done. I can only tend to the garden of my own soul. But I beg you, tend to the garden of your soul if it needs to go the other way. And one final observation, and then we'll move into our time of worship. Just a short time of worship. When the lepers are drinking in this good fortune, and they realize, hey, there's some people not far away from here, and they're still killing kids to eat, and they're still selling awful food at exorbitant prices, and it hits them like a ton of bricks. Oh, man. How can we be enjoying all this and not make it available to others? this is really just a picture of the condition of people who don't have things that I have. Well, sometimes I get so caught up in my life and what goes on in my little world, and I can tell you this, I can get so utterly self-absorbed that I don't even see people the way I ought to see them. And so I just want to close with a a little scene from a book called Just Walk Across the Room by Bill Heibels. I looked at a business guy in our community, and I've known him for years. By his own admission, he's far from God. I looked at him the other day. I was passing his business establishment, and he was standing outside of it. And I thought, why should I be so concerned about this guy's life and soul? He lives in a palatial home. His business is printing money. He's still married to his first wife. His kids are okay. He's got friends and health. Why should I lay awake at night worrying about him? Why should I extend yet another time? Why should I make another phone call, write another note, share Christ with him yet one other time? I just got foggy because I only looked at him externally. And Jesus, if he were driving by that guy's place of business and saw him standing on the outside, I know what he would do. Jesus would say, oh no. Here is yet another guy gaining the world and losing his own soul. Here's another guy who's going to get to the end and realize he ran the wrong race. Here's another guy who's going to fall off the ledge into the eternal abyss where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. Jesus would feel a tremendous sense of urgency about reaching that guy. Jesus looked at everybody outside the family, the baker the, or the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. He just looked right at the insides of them and he decided to go for broke. And Hybels concludes this way, Jesus would say to folks outside the family, I am the bread of life. On the outside, you don't look hungry, but I can see the inner hunger, and I'm telling you, I'm the bread. I'm the light of the world, and I know everything looks okay on the outside of your life, but I know in your soul it's dark and getting darker, and I am the light you're looking for. I am the door, and you look okay on the outside, but I know many of you have created for yourselves prisons of greed and ego and power and lust." And I'm the door. Through me, you can be free. And I'm the resurrection of the life. And I know if you should die in your present condition, all you know is darkness and isolation. And I came to give you life and to give it to you in its fullest. So look at me. I can give you life. And when I read that, I knew I needed to be committed to trying to see more people like Jesus saw I want that pair of lenses that gets me past the externals to look right into the heart in such a way that it would move my heart in such a way that I would go for broke. That I would share the abundance of my life and that I would retain a sense of urgency all the way to the end. And here's what I'd love. I know it probably won't happen, but I hope to some degree it might. I would love to get to the end of my life and have Jesus say, Bill, you made a lot of mistakes. You committed more than your quota of sins and you wandered off the path more than you should have. But two things. Thanks for keeping your heart soft for people who didn't know me. And thanks for the seed you sowed and the courage you manifested all the way to the end. Wouldn't you love to hear those words? And you know what? I think there's going to be a Water's Edge celebration in heaven. I think we might even get our own banquet. I think it would be so cool if Jesus would stand up in front of the waters edge banquet in heaven and say, "Edgers, you screwed up a lot more than I wish you would have. And you wandered a little bit here and there. Perhaps it was a function of poor leadership, but uh, <laughs> but I mean you lost your way sometimes, but two things. What a heart you had for lost folks. Most of you were lost yourselves when you came to this church and you never forgot the plight of your buddies. Good job in keeping a soft heart. And you know what else, Water's Edge? You never lost your nerve. You never lost your guts. You kept trying and failing and trying and trying and trying, and you had courage all the way to the end. Good job, Water's Edge. Good job. Wouldn't that be something? God, I want it to happen. Let's pray. Father, in no way do I want us to be motivated out of guilt, but out of the the wonder of your graciousness to us. Gratitude for what you've done. We realize that this whole thing is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. May there be something about our countenance that just might be said about the first century disciples. They recognize them as having been with Jesus. And may that be enough as we go out to to scatter seed. We're not responsible for the outcome you are. But um, help us to be faithful and and give us the lenses to see into the hearts of the people that, uh, that we rub shoulders with every day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.